Okay, so the recording. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earthquake Science Center seminar series for July 6, 2022. Please mute your microphones and turn off your cameras. Just one quick announcement before we begin. Next week's talk will be What Rubber and Jello Can Teach Us About Earthquakes and Fractures by Will Steinhardt. Um, today we're going to take questions at the end of the talk, but as usual, you can type them into the chat at any time, um, or you can wait until the end, raise your hand, and unmute yourself and we call on you. Um, and with that, I'd like to hand it off to Oliver Boyd to introduce today's speaker. Good morning. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Elna Salabi today. She's an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Nevada at Reno. Her academic background is in civil engineering, primarily trained as a computational solid mechanics and geotechnical earthquake engineer. She received her PhD in civil engineering from UCLA and a master's in earthquake engineering and BS in civil engineering from Sharif University of Technology. Before joining the University of Nevada at Reno, she was a postdoctoral scholar at the California Institute of Technology. Uh, her research focuses on developing and testing new techniques and methodologies to improve and accelerate physics-based learning, modeling, and uncertainty quantification in geosystems. She, broadly, she's interested in achieving the synergy among mechanistic modeling, distributed sensing, scientific machine learning, and high-performance computing to understand better the built environment's interaction with natural and induced hazards, taking interdependencies and uncertainties into account and using the improved understanding to devise and train predictive models for engineering applications from design to decision-making. Some of some examples of our ongoing efforts include uncertainty quantification in geosystems, geosystem monitoring and characterization, shallow crustal characterization, of Seismo VLAB, an open source finite element software for wave propagation and soil structure interaction modeling. And today she'll be telling us about her work on broadband ground motion simulations with sediment nonlinearity non in Garner Valley, California. Elnaz? Okay, thanks Oliver for the introduction. And also I want to thank USGS for hosting this uh, seminar and inviting me. Uh, so uh, today I want to talk uh, about some of the work we have done to consider and model shallow cross nonlinearity uh, in broadband ground motion simulations and share some of our results for the case studies we have done so far at the Garnet Valley in California. And uh, before starting, I want to mention that uh, this work is in collaboration with uh, my colleagues Dominique Asimaki at Caltech and Dorian Bristrepo and Ricardo Tobordo from EFAT. Also, uh, I would like to thank Jorge Krempian from Chile and Phil Micheling and May Sue from SCAC for helping us with generating some of the kinematic source and velocity models that we use for our simulations. Uh, the work has been supported mainly by SCAC, and uh, I would like to acknowledge the computing, computing resources we had access to uh, for our simulations, uh, the early ones through Blue Waters and later on uh, on TAC system at UT Austin. Uh, so uh, in the next uh, 50 minutes or so, I would like to spend some time to talk about the main components of broadband deterministic ground motion simulations and what are some of the challenges when we push these simulations to high frequencies. What are the proxies we can use to approximate shallow cross nonlinearity in such simulations and why we need to go beyond elasticity and perfect plasticity. Then I would like to spend some time um, going through the 
uh, steps we took for implementing and verifying a simple but relatively rigorous and robust plasticity model in Hercules, which is uh, an octree-based finite element uh, code developed originally by Professor Jacobo Bialak and his team at Carnegie Mellon, and is one of the software packages we use today for performing high-frequency deterministic ground motion simulations. And then after that, I would like to uh, share some of the results for the case studies we have done in an idealized shape basin and at the Garnet Valley in California. I would like to wrap up then the, this presentation by some concluding remarks. So uh, for the broadband deterministic earthquake simulations, we need to have three main components. One is the source model to represent uh, the event we want to simulate. We need to discretize the domain and uh, define the properties of the geomaterial at different scales through the velocity model shown here in the middle. And also we need to have a solver, hopefully uh, scalable and good so solver to solve the governing and wave equations. And for a long time, these simulations were limited to uh, low frequencies, let's say up to 0.5 to 1 hertz. Uh, but today, as we have access to more computational resources, um, having these simulations for larger domains or at higher frequencies becoming more and more realistic. And when we go at higher frequencies, now we can have a meter scale resolution in these simulations, which means that now we can model higher resolution velocity structure, especially at near surface, because and these are the velocity structures that can be seen by waves with short wavelengths. Also, in addition to that, now we can reduce the minimum shear wave velocity values we usually use in these simulations and let them go uh, smaller. And therefore, we are able to model the behavior of a softer geomaterial in such simulations. And uh, in an ideal, ideal case, when we have a larger event, this material can behave nonlinearly. So both, both of these items are really important uh, items. And, and um, today, there are lots of studies um, on both to see how we can improve uh, our modeling capabilities. Um, but um, today's presentation is about um, how we can um, add the physics related to shallow cross nonlinearity in these simulations. So what are the primary effects of shallow cross nonlinearity? So when we have um, a large event that can intru introduce large value of a stress to near surface geomaterial, we would have uh, the stress-strain behavior that can deviate from Hooke's law, and therefore we would have some hysteresis loops. And these hysteresis loops can result in a reduction in shear modulus and increase in attenuation in terms of the material damping. What are the consequences? We will see the reduction in site amplification factors in general. We would have the shift in predominant frequencies of the sites, and also we may have increase in residual and differential deformations. And as you see, um, these uh, changes can uh, induce or put uh, different types of seismic risk to uh, civil uh, infrastructure, especially in engineering applications. So uh, today there are uh, different uh, um, methods to capture or try uh, or um, approximate uh, the shallow cross nonlinearity at the regional scale. So I would like to go through uh, some of these uh, method, methods now. 
Uh, one widely approach is the hybrid approach that one can couple uh, the results of three-dimensional simulations that is linear with one-dimensional threat response analysis. So um, in this case, we are considering the nonlinear analysis as a post-processing step, and here we can use very complex uh, constitutive models to represent the behavior. However, the main limitation of this methodology is its blindness to three-dimensional nonlinear scattering effects. And because of that, there were some attempts to see how we can approximate these three-dimensional effects by using the equivalent linear approach. Some of you probably are familiar with uh, this methodology in site response analysis. For that, one needs to come up with some, uh, some indication of the shear stress in the three-dimensional setting and use that to uh, come up with some equivalent properties in terms of the shear modulus and damping, and then use that to run linear simulations. But um, in general, this methodology is, uh, is incapable of modeling the residual deformations. So here are two approximations that one can use in this methodology. Uh, one is right, just the extension of uh, the method we use for site response analysis, that uh, we use the uh, effective value of the shear strain to uh, come up with a reduction in shear modulus and increase in damping at any point within the computational domain and use that to run the simulation, which is linear. But we need to do that iteratively till some convergence uh, happens. Or um, another approach uh, in this um, um, uh, in this equivalent linear uh, methodology is uh, using the time-dependent properties, uh, where we are going to update the properties in terms of the shear modulus and damping on the fly and as we proceed uh, with time in our simulations. But as I said, uh, the main limitation uh, in this uh, methodology is its uh, blindness to uh, the residual and permanent ground deformations. So uh, ideally, if we want to take uh, shallow cross nonlinearity into account at large scale and in ground motion simulations, we need to implement and use uh, representative constitutive, constitutive models. But uh, if we take a look at uh, the, uh, the computational cost and fidelity of these uh, different approaches that I just uh, mentioned, we will see that as we go to uh, equivalent linear approach, and if we, comp uh, we compare the computational cost uh, with respect to the linear or hybrid approach, we have a good assessment how, how expensive this uh, simulation could be, because either we are repeating the linear simulation, let's say 10 or 20 times, or we are just uh, doing one uh, simulation by updating the properties at each time step. However, when we go from equivalent linear approach to the nonlinear approach, depending on how effective our solver is or how, um, how complex the, the implemented or incorporated constitutive model is, uh, the cost uh, can change significantly. And today we don't have a very good assessment of the additional computational costs. In addition to that, when we take a look at the computational fidelity we can achieve by using different methodology, it is not that clear how much, ac uh, how much accuracy we're adding to uh, the problem setting by going from linear analysis to the equivalent linear analysis or when we are going to the nonlinear analysis. Of course, when we use the constitutive models, we expect to have uh, better uh, results, but uh, we may also add lots of uncertainty to the problem. And is, uh, today is not very clear what is our gain by adding such a fidelities to the problem. And uh, this work that we have done so far was an attempt to address some of these questions and get some preliminary results for them. <laughs> 
So uh, with this, uh, I want now uh, to talk a little bit about uh, how we try to implement a constitutive model in Hercules that, as I mentioned, is one of the uh, software packages we can use for doing ground motion simulations. Uh, today, we have a rich library of um, constitutive models for geotechnical earthquake and applications. However, um, not necessarily all of them are going to be suitable for regional scale simulations. For example, on the left, you see the list of the models that we have for Seoul, that they can go very simple, like elastic, perfectly plastic model. In the three-dimensional setting, we usually call them the J2 uh, plasticity model, or they can go very complex, like critical state models that uh, are designed to represent the behavior of the geomaterial over the wide range of the strain. And because of that, the number of the parameters they have can reach up to 10 to 15 parameters. So even for the smaller scale problems, like let's say site response analysis or solid structure interaction applications, if we go and use a, such a complex plasticity model, it would be very difficult to calibrate them and define and set the parameters. So using such a model wouldn't be probably a wise choice for um, the regional scale and probably we need to start simple. Uh, with this in mind, uh, one of the very first studies that um, wanted uh, to consider uh, the nonlinear soil effects in uh, ground motion simulations goes back to 2012. And uh, there was a study by Jacobo Bialak, Ricardo Taborda and Dorian Restrepo that uh, they wanted to see what happens if we consider elastic perfect plastic model to represent the behavior of the sedimentary basins. And they did two simulations in, um, in two basins, and, and what they observed is that by adding the nonlinearity, what uh, we can have is the reduction in peak ground accelerations, as shown here in figure A, and also we would have um, the residual deformations and added deformations um, compared to the linear case, which is shown in figure C. But uh, what are the disadvantages of using uh, the elastic perfectly plastic model, which is very simple uh, considered model to consider for geometrical. So uh, one of the, um, uh, the primary parameters that we usually use to uh, calibrate um, the geomaterials behavior in the nonlinear range is a geover GMAX curve that shows how the stiffness is changing as a function of the strain. And if we take a look at the elastic perfectly plastic model, we will see that um, they are not able to reproduce that behavior. And up to some strain value, the value of um, the stiffness is equal to the GMAX, and then we have the sharp drop in uh, the stiffness value. And because of um, that um, um, limitations, um, using this model can result in artificially large hysteresis loops at large strains, and therefore the overestimation of residual deformations and attenuation, which means that we may have overestimation in reduction we have for site amplification factors. And also at the small to moderate strain values, um, these uh, this model is going to be blind to the effects of geometrical nonlinearity. And if we use this model, the result would be the same as the linear simulations. So because of these limitations, it is um, natural that we think of going beyond um, uh, perfect plasticity and see how we can increase the accuracy of these um, simulations in a large scale by using uh, more rigorous uh, models. However, when we do so, we have some. Uh, we need to have some uh, considerations. Uh, one is that we we cannot go uh, and use a very complex model 
because again, we would have lots of the parameters that we don't know how to calibrate them at the larger scale. And also, uh, we need to make sure that this model is going to have a good performance, especially when we compare that to the simpler elastic perfect plastic model. So uh, there was a, a technical activity group at SCAG discussing uh, what are the good uh, models that one can use uh, for uh, doing or uh, modeling uh, sediment nonlinearity in uh, ground motion simulations. And uh, one a simple, uh, one relatively simple model is uh, the I1 type nested surface plasticity model, which is basically the stack of uh, J2 models you can put together in parallel. And by doing so, you can generate uh, the hysteresis loops that are not elastic perfect plastic anymore, and you would have the smooth backbone curve and therefore the smooth reduction in G over G max. And this model has been implemented by uh, colleagues at San Diego State University into the finite difference code AWPODC. And another uh, relatively simple plasticity model is uh, the bounding surface plasticity model uh, proposed uh, by Borhan Ames in 1994, which again has uh, only two, three parameters that one needs uh, to uh, determine to be able to uh, generate um, the um, the the um, or capture the G over G max curve, and this is the model we used uh, to implement in Hercules, and I want to talk um, more about uh, that in the um, future in the next slides, basically. Uh, but um, considering uh, the two main um, considerations I mentioned here. If we take a look at these two models, we will see that both of them can be easily calibrated by a given G over G max curve. So here I'm showing a given curve and how uh, these two models can capture that by setting the parameters in a right way. And as you see, the generated hysteresis loops are not uh, linear, um, I mean, uh, perfectly uh, plastic anymore. And we have this uh, smooth uh, backbone curve and loading and unloading um, cases. And in addition to that, uh, there are lots of uh, studies that have shown good performance of these uh, models. Here on the left, I'm showing some of the studies that has been have been done for site response and solid structure interaction analysis using the bounding surface plasticity model. But we have uh, several other studies showing good performance of the I1 type model implemented in AWP software. And um, just to show you how this model is performing well, uh, on the right, you see some of the results of the site response analysis we have done at one of the downhole areas in Japan for the KickNet um, network. So we use the bounding surface plasticity model. We uh, did calibration of that um, to set the parameters using the G over G max curve. And after that, we use that model to perform uh, site response analysis. So in this figure in the middle, you see how that model is capturing the recorded acceleration time series at the surface of the site. And in order to have a sense how much nonlinearity we had in this site, um, the figure at the bottom shows uh, the empirical transfer function. And you see that the peak is shifted compared to the linear case, which shows we have a quite good amount of nonlinearity here. And this model could successfully capture that. So um, this is just uh, one simple example to show that um, the model in general has um, good performance uh, for uh, doing um, site response analysis and solar structure interaction analysis. 
So uh, with this, uh, I want uh, to uh, now uh, to show you how uh, we did uh, the implementation in Hercules and also uh, what were some of the verification studies we have done to make sure the model is doing well and um, it is um, behaving as expected. Uh, so uh, this uh, figure on the top shows uh, the main uh, components of uh, the Hercules uh, software and the workflow for that, that we have some input data, we use that to generate the mesh, and then we need to have the source information. After that, the software will use uh, these information to solve the wave equations and generate the output data. And uh, uh, this software is based on using uh, explicit methods, and uh, if we take a look at um, the equations that needs to be solved for um, each uh, degree of freedom, in, in order to define and that um, uh, basically uh, nonlinear equations or plasticity model equations, we need to replace the definition of uh, the stress uh, tensor. And instead of having the Hooke's law, we are just going to update that based on the equations of that uh, plasticity model. And I would like to mention here that um, the main implementation uh, for uh, this uh, plasticity model has, uh, has been done by uh, Dorian Bestrepo, who is one of the main developers of uh, Hercules. And after that, uh, we uh, define uh, different types of verification studies to make sure the model is doing well. So uh, the, um, this figure shows uh, the simple experiment that we wanted to have um, and the, the testing at the elemental level. And, uh, and we compared our results uh, against um, the similar implementation of the same model in OpenSys, which is uh, an open source uh, finite element software uh, used widely for geotechnical earthquake engineering applications. And here you see that uh, after applying a relatively simple uh, displacement time series, the generated stress strain curves uh, at all directions are um, agreeing quite well with the OpenSea's results that uh, we have the similar implementation. We have done uh, the one-dimensional site response analysis using this uh, model, again modeling the problem both in Hercules and OpenSea's. And uh, here you see uh, the response uh, at point A on the surface for uh, displacement and acceleration that meant they agree quite well. And also uh, you see the stress strain curves at different depths that again, they're in very good agreement. So uh, after doing um, this um, verifications, uh, then uh, we moved on to have a more complex uh, problem. And here we have uh, basically um, uh, a, a two layered um, salt deposit uh, embedded in an elastic half space. Uh, we made the size of the domain um, relatively large, but we cannot go uh, very large because of the limitations uh, we have for running uh, this um, such simulation open seas. And, um, and then, uh, so therefore we kept the size of the domain to be about 128 meter. Uh, for modeling uh, the source, we decided to have a point source as a double couple. And then uh, we uh, ran simulation in both Hercules and OpenSeas. And here I'm showing the results for the stress-strain tensor at different depths, which is 14 meter, 34, and, four, and 54. Uh, and they're located at different locations um, in these uh, two layers we have that can go nonlinear. 
And um, again, uh, we see a good performance of uh, this model comp uh, compared to similar implementation. Of course, we're not as good as the other two examples, but considering the complexities we are adding in this three-dimensional setting, in terms of having different solver to solve this uh, wave equation in these two software packages, and also having um, different types of implementation for the uh, plasticity model, we consider this agreement quite reasonable and um, good. So uh, with this, uh, then um, after having confidence about uh, the correctness of the implementation and verifying that, uh, we moved on to perform some case studies to better understand the effects of um, modeling shallow cross nonlinearity using different uh, approaches. So here I'm showing the results for an idealized shape basin that we considered an ellipsoid basin with two layers that can behave nonlinearly. And these are the properties we have uh, for each layer, top and bottom. And then we considered that to be embedded in an elastic half a space with the VS property of uh, VS value of 800 meter per second. Then we excite the system with vertically propagating shear waves that are polarized at 45 degree. And with this, we're basically putting the source and path effects aside, and we're just focusing on uh, scattering and basin effects. Then for modeling the nonlinearity in these two layers of the basin, we define two uh, G over G max curves, and then use that to calibrate um, the constitutive model that we are using for our simulations. So uh, here I'm showing the results of the simulations at the center of the basin, and you see the UX, which is the displacement in X direction. We uh, did the simulation assuming that everything is linear. So that is our baseline simulation, and this is the response we have in gray. Then we repeated this simulation by assuming that these two layers have um, the elastic perfect plasticity model. And if you remember, that model was uh, the very first attempt to go beyond elasticity. And if we do so, the response that we're getting would be this uh, green line. So you see that at the beginning, when we are in that linear region, um, it's following the response of the elastic case. But after that, when we hit the, um, the yield surface and go beyond that, uh, the response uh, is shifted and uh, quite different. And we would have about four centimeter of residual deformation. Now, if we repeat the simulation using the three-dimensional bounding surface plasticity model that can represent the G over G max uh, better, uh, this is the result we would have at the center. And you see that for this case, uh, the response could be completely different from the other two from the very beginning. And the amount of the residual deformation we would have for this idealized case is quite smaller than what we get from um, the elastic perfectly plastic model. Also, if you remember, I discussed another method, uh, which is the hybrid approach that we can combine the, uh, the results of the three-dimensional simulations with one-dimensional set response analysis. So let's consider the same one-dimensional soil column at the center here, uh, which is on that elastic half space and run um, that one-dimensional set response analysis using the same bounding surface plasticity model. If we do so, we will see uh, this blue line at the center and at the beginning, it is trying to follow the behavior of the three-dimensional case, and that's natural because we have all these incoming waves. But later on, we would have a scattering because of the basin effects that can appear for the three-dimensional case, but this model is completely blind to that. So we don't see those oscillations that are happening 
um, for the uh, red response in the blue response. And this gives us some sense what happens when we are using different proxies uh, to approximate shallow cross nonlinearity in such simulations. So with this, I want um, uh, also uh, show you the displacement field we have for each cases in this uh, relatively simple basin. So uh, you would see uh, for the elastic perfect plastic model that the results are similar to the elastic case, but the changes are slower because we would have the reduction in shear modulus. And the bounding surface case, the results are quite different from the other two. So let's take a look at uh, that together. So as I mentioned, um, the, the third case is quite different from the other two, but uh, the, the, the elastic perfect plastic model case, the responses uh, are similar to the elastic model, but it seems that they're just shifted and the changes are uh, slower. Okay, so uh, with this, uh, I would like to um, also um, provide uh, you some of the results we had for the case studies uh, we completed at the Garnet Valley. Uh, so the Garner Valley region is located in Southern California and is a um, um, seismic area between two fault zones uh, shown here. Uh, several uh, small magnitude and large magnitude earthquakes has been recorded at this um, um, region. And it, is, um, it has a site uh, that we call it the Garner Valley Downhole Array site, which is well instrumented. It has a downhole array, the solar structure interaction site and several um, surface accelerometers. And, um, and we wanted uh, to consider this as one of our test beds. And, but uh, before that, we wanted to know how much nonlinearity we should expect at this uh, region uh, when we have one of these um, few larger events uh, with a magnitude greater than five. So we did some site response analysis in, um, in that uh, Garnet Valley downhole array site um, to, um, to get a sense about the amount of the nonlinearity. In order to do that, we needed to characterize uh, the downhole array. And, um, and for that, we need to define the velocity profile. And in addition to that, uh, some um, geology max curve to calibrate the bounding surface plasticity model. Uh, for the uh, velocity profile, we could get the velocity from uh, the existing velocity models like the CV, SCEC CVM. S uh, 4.26 with a geotechnical layer added. And if we do so, we will get this uh, red line. However, at this specific site, there are lots of studies that have done site characterization and we decided uh, to use the velocity profile for this specific study, which is one dimension analysis. And it's this uh, green line that comes from uh, doing some joint inversion analysis. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, in order to define the geover GMAX curve, we decided to um, have some uh, simplifying assumption because we, we later, later on we want to use um, these geover GMAX curves for our two-dimensional simulations. So we said that uh, for the VS values being less than 450 meters per second, we assume it, uh, we assign one geology max uh, to that. And for uh, the layers having the VS between 450 up to 800, we would have, we would assign another geology max. We use the average VS uh, and Z values for each layer uh, with uh, the empirical equations uh, like those in Durandilly 2001 to compute the, these geology max curves and then use that to determine the free parameters of the bounding surface plasticity model, which is H, M, and tau F. 
So uh, with this, then we could uh, run our linear and nonlinear site response analysis. So here you see the results uh, for um, uh, one of the larger magnitude 5.4 events at the Valley Town Hall array. For the, uh, uh, for the linear case, uh, you see that at the beginning, uh, the simulated results are capturing the recorded motion. And this is because we are really using a very good uh, velocity profile for that specific site. But later on, uh, we cannot uh, capture uh, the, uh, the attenuation we have in recorded uh, motion after uh, 50, um, 17 seconds or so for both directions, radial and transverse. However, if we repeat the same simulation and do nonlinear site response analysis, we see that this time the model is uh, more successful in, in capturing um, the recorded uh, accelerations at this site, which is an indication of uh, some extent of nonlinearity at the site uh, for the event, uh, the larger event uh, recorded uh, in this region. Also, if we take a look at uh, the hysteresis loops, we will see that um, they, there are some um, hysteresis behavior. And if we take a look at the amount of the shear strain, we expect about 20 uh, or up to 30% reduction in uh, the shear modulus um, uh, values uh, at this uh, downhole array. So uh, with this, um, we, uh, we, we moved on uh, to perform some three-dimensional simulations at this um, region. But at the beginning, like what we have done for the idealized shape basin, we decided to have a plane wave simulation and therefore put the source and path effects aside. And here we only wanted to focus on the three-dimensional scattering effects plus seeing what is the effects of using either low or high frequency excitation to, um, to basically excite the model. So uh, in this figure uh, on the left, you see the region that we studied and the Garner Valley downhole area is located here. We excited the model with vertically propagating shear waves along this uh, white arrow. And uh, this figure on the right shows um, the structure of two valleys we have in the region. Um, you are here you are seeing the depths uh, to a VS of 800 meter per second and you see that um, this valley that the Garner Valley downhole area is located and another valley next to that that has a deeper structure. And uh, I want to also mention that uh, for these simulations, we assume that when the VS is less, less than 800 meter per second, um, the material can behave non-linearly, non but uh, after that, they would be uh, linear. Uh, we consider two types of input, uh, one low frequency, which is the weaker wavelet with the central frequency of one hertz, and then um, the high frequency one, which has the central frequency of about three hertz. And uh, to make the results comparable, we made sure that both of them having the same outcrop acceleration, uh, peak ground acceleration. So uh, we completed four uh, simulations and uh, considering these two excitations and um, having linear and nonlinear simulations. And here I would like to show you the peak ground acceleration uh, ratio maps, which uh, is the peak ground accelerations we have or PGAs normalized by the outcrop PGA, which is the same for all simulations. And uh, this uh, row, which has uh, that 3D case, uh, shows uh, the results for uh, low frequency and high frequency, linear, nonlinear. 
for the low frequency case, we see that when we uh, we make uh, the simulation uh, nonlinear and adding nonlinearity non to the problem, uh, the PGAs are increasing slightly, but um, they are following the same pattern and there are not that significant change in the results. However, when we do the high frequency simulations that now the waves can see smaller features uh, there and uh, may uh, be trapped more in uh, those um, near surface uh, layers and therefore cause more attenuation. For the linear case, we see the um, an increase in PGAs compared to the low frequency case. But for the nonlinear case, we see a significant drop in PGAs, especially for the areas that we have the soft material. Also, if you remember, we, we had uh, the other hybrid approach, and if we repeat the same thing for this problem setting, what we could do was uh, having the three-dimensional results and perform site response analysis at any uh, grid point we have in this uh, region. And if we, uh, and here, uh, I mean, uh, in, uh, in the last row, you see the results of that hybrid approach. For the low frequency case, we see the pattern, which is quite, um, they're similar to each other, but different from the 3D case. And that triangle feature that we see here correlates very well with the VS structure when we don't add any geotechnical layer to the problem. So this is another indication that when we use this hybrid approach, we are kind of ignoring all those uh, three-dimensional effects that can uh, change the pattern uh, of um, the uh, these intensity measures um, based on the amount of the scattering we have. And also when we do the, uh, the, the high frequency analysis, we will see uh, this pattern. The PGAs are increased more compared to the 3D case. And also for the nonlinear case, we don't see that significant drop in PGAs anymore. Still, we have some increase compared to, um, uh, to uh, basically the uh, low frequency case. So uh, also uh, we can take a look at the peak ground uh, displacement maps um, and here uh, we see similar patterns. Um, for the low frequency case, again, we don't have that much uh, change when we go from linear to nonlinear. However, the main changes are happening when we have high frequency simulations and, the for, and for the nonlinear case, we would have peak ground displacement that are uh, more uh, compared to the linear case. And when we compare the 3D case with the hybrid approach, we see um, that a change or a differences in uh, the, uh, the pattern of the ground deformations, which again shows the limitation of this hybrid approach. Uh, we also have done uh, some earthquake simulations in this uh, region. Uh, here uh, we, we, we didn't have any um, objective uh, related to validating and, and the main uh, focus here was to see what happens when we add more realistic source um, to the problem setting. And also if we uh, model very large ma larger magnitude earthquake, let's say a magnitude 6.5 earthquake, um, is uh, the implemented model good enough to converge and we can complete the simulation basically. So uh, to model uh, these uh, earthquakes, we made uh, the size of the domain uh, larger. It is the 65 by 65 kilometer region with a, uh, with a thickness of about 30 kilometer. Uh, we modeled the 2010 uh, magnitude 5.4 Borrego Spring earthquake is the same event I used to perform nonlinear site response analysis uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the previous uh, slides. 
And um, and when we did uh, this simulation, both linear and nonlinear, we limited the maximum frequency to be up uh, to be three hertz because of the computational constraints. And uh, for this case, about 20% of elements uh, could behave nonlinearly with that constraint that the those that have the Vs less than 800 meter per second can go nonlinear. And using um, this uh, number of the processors, the amount of time it took for nonlinear simulation was about 12 times the linear analysis. So uh, here um, you see how uh, the displacement field is uh, propagating uh, when we compared linear and nonlinear simulation for uh, the Borrego Springs earthquake. And uh, you see that uh, when we add nonlinearity, we would have these permanent deformations that are um, trapped uh, and, and, and stayed there uh, in sedimentary areas and soft areas, especially when we are close to the source. And when we take a look at the peak ground displacement and acceleration maps, they are showing similar patterns as those we saw uh, for uh, the case of plane wave simulation. Also, when we take a look at the larger event that we had um, the magnitude 6.5 earthquake, uh, here we see that uh, even for the linear case, when we are close to the source, we have such uh, these uh, permanent deformations. Uh, but uh, when we make the problem nonlinear, uh, we have more localized features around uh, those permanent deformations and uh, some amplifications in uh, sedimentary areas, both close to the source and when we are um, far from um, the, the location of the source. Again, for the peak ground displacement and acceleration, we see the same pattern that we have significant drop in PGAs, but um, increase in peak ground deformations. And I want to um, um, emphasize again that uh, these changes uh, can um, also change the seismic risk to both distributed lifelines um, that might be more susceptible to ground deformations and uh, building structures that are, are more susceptible to um, changes in PGA and uh, predominant frequencies. Uh, with this, um, I want to um, wrap up this presentation with some uh, concluding remarks. And, um, and as I uh, discussed before, um, today, uh, of course, we can um, do deterministic simulations at frequencies that are high enough and to uh, reach uh, to the range that are interesting for uh, engineering applications. However, the question is how um, accurate or um, I mean informative as such results are. And in order to improve uh, the fidelity of these simulations, uh, we need uh, to uh, improve the accuracy of uh, the models we are using to represent the geometrical behavior, both in linear and um, nonlinear regions. Also, uh, when uh, we are talking about uh, these uh, nonlinear simulations, um, today uh, most of our uh, solver packages are optimized and um, and um, are optimized for linear simulations. And it is important that we make sure that um, such um, solvers can um, be scalable when we do nonlinear analysis. Uh, which means that uh, probably we would have better, we should have better strategies for domain decomposition and uh, also um, um, solving uh, these uh, nonlinear wave equations and um, uh, these uh, material point um, nonlinear equations. 
In addition to that, uh, I just uh, talk about uh, the bounding surface plasticity model as one choice uh, to be implemented in these um, um, ground motion simulation software packages. However, it, it uh, although it's better than elastic perfect plasticity model, but it has its own uh, limitations uh, and it cannot capture lots of features that we may expect from geomaterial. Therefore, it's important that we can enrich the library of um, such plasticity models uh, and make sure that we have um, we make them uh, computationally efficient. Uh, also, um, like um, what we do for linear analysis, that we use the uh, velocity models to define uh, the properties uh, for a small strain uh, range within the computational domain, we need to augment and enrich uh, the existing velocity models uh, to incorporate uh, information required for constitutive model calibration and um, definition, basically. Um, the other thing and that I think that uh, needs uh, to be done in this um, area is um, like what uh, we have done for decades to uh, validate the linear simulation results uh, using the observational data. Uh, the same thing needs to be happened for um, nonlinear simulations. Uh, we have very limited data in that sense. However, it's very important to define some test beds that we can uh, enable such uh, validations. And at the end, uh, there are more studies are needed to see how we can uh, utilize um, the results of these nonlinear simulations for engineering applications, similar to what uh, we, are we are doing today for uh, linear simulations. So uh, with this, uh, I want uh, to thank you uh, for your attention and participating in this uh, seminar. And uh, if you want to read more about uh, what I presented today, these two publications are having uh, similar information that you can refer to. And if you have any questions or you would like to discuss any of the things that I uh, presented today, please uh, feel free to contact me uh, using this um, email address. And uh, with this, I would like to uh, stop here and finish my presentation. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alnaz. Um, we have a, a virtual round of applause. Um, so we're going to open the floor to questions. And we already have a number of questions in the chat. So I guess we'll just we can go through these one at a time. Um, Mehmet Chalabi, do you want to unmute yourself and ask it yourself? You are doing a very good job there, so go ahead, please. Wait, do you want me to? I can read it. Um, question, how does the software incorporate the hysteretic damping that is in the figures you showed? Uh, you mean uh, what damping? Hysteretic? Yes. What? Okay, so uh, when we use the that constitutive model, it is part of that hysteresis loop. So when it is generated, the damping would be incorporated um, by that. So it's not like the small strain damping that you need to define it um, uh, in terms of, let's say, uh, damping metric. It is part of uh, those uh, uh, forcing equation that comes by solving those hysteresis loops. Well, I think the intention of my question was whether you had a separate uh, uh, algorithm to compute that, or is it somehow built in? Because the hysteresis loops that you show are all over the place with respect to their shape. 
Yes, so um, it would be, uh, so when we uh, solve uh, here to determine that sigma n, which is basically that uh, forcing function Rn here, that is going to take into account that hysteretic damping, which is separate from uh, the one that comes with that C, which is more representation of the viscose damping. Yes, of course, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well. So it is part of uh, that, uh, I mean, that forcing function, which is a function of the displacement and velocity, that force. I don't want to take other people's time, but my question is really related. Obviously, it is uh, as you described, but how how is it incorporated into the software? That's what I'm suggesting, because the shapes are so different mm -hmm. that that any one uh, simple simplification is not that easy. That's that's okay. the. Uh, um, so I didn't put the details uh, of the equations for this bounding surface plasticity model, but each constitutive relationship has uh, its own formulation that how you define the stress um, at each uh, increment. And um, for each time step, you need to solve those equations to basically update your sigma n or a stress tensor as a function of the strain. And um, that is going to take care of all the behaviors you see as complex stress strain behavior. And those generated hysteresis loops because of solving these equations will take into account that hysteretic damping. So for example, um, when we are here, uh, if I go, for example, here, so when we are solving um, at each time step, we are just moving a little bit on these curves. And when these curves are generated um, by design, and those uh, dampings will be taken into account as the area within uh, those hysteresis loops, which is showing the dissipation of energy, basically. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay, um, Joan Gomberg has a question in the chat. Do you want to ask it yourself? Um, sure. So I'm just wondering if this software can be adapted or has been to work in a submarine or lacustrian environment that is under a water layer. Um, as far as I know, uh, we it doesn't have the capability of kind of modeling the water based on what I know. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, then probably you should be able to use it. But uh, it has the GitHub account, I mean, um, repository that you can, uh, and it's uh, free, so you can download. And it has some documentation to check if you're interested. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Jamie Steidel. I can read it. Hi, Elnaz. Great, great talk. Um, I, I was just curious about um, whether there's, whether you take into account saturation and sediments um, for excess pore pressure. And, no, this is and the next. Your behavior. No, no, that is the next step. So yeah, uh, we really want to do that, uh, but we need to make some changes in uh, the implemented model to take into account that pore water pressure. But it shouldn't be that difficult, um, and there are some studies showing how you can um, add a pore water pressure to 
both of these models, um, the I1 type and also the bounding surface plasticity model. Great, look forward to that. Thank you. Um, Evan Hirokawa has his hand raised. Hey, well, nice, um, nice talk. Um, I was wondering that bounding the plasticity service you use is it? What is that exactly? Is it closed on the end? Like, uh, does the material behave inelastic in a pure compression, or is it only is it like a Drucker Prager type? It um, uh, it's got, um, it is nonlinear in the case of the deviatoric stress which is more sheer and it is elastic for the compressive one. So okay. it's just considering nonlinearity for the uh, deviatory stresses. And it is, um, it's, it behaves nonlinearly. So it, they call it the vanished elastic region. So it starts being nonlinear from very beginning. It doesn't, uh, it's not like having these nested models that they are going to be piecewise linear. It's not like that. It has that smooth behavior from very beginning, but in the deviatory stress space, basically. So with the uh, Hercules, can you easily play around with different uh, surface or you can swap in and out? Or is it? Uh, I mean, you or, mean. Or right uh, now you only have that one service implement. Uh, you mean the model? Yeah, yeah. So um, they are, uh, so um, the elastic perfectly plastic model is there. Um, there are two different uh, types of that bounding surface plasticity model implemented, the exponential version and another one. And um, I believe that we also have the Drucker-Prager model implemented there. So there are different, um, I think that three or four model implemented. But I think that uh, this bounding surface plasticity model is kind of the most efficient one in terms of it's easy to solve compared to the other ones, basically. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And it's not, uh, I, I believe that um, this branch uh, that we worked and used for the simulation of the Hercules is not pushed to the master, but um, if you want, um, I mean, I can show you which branch it is. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll ask you about that. Sure. Thank you. I think we have one more question in the chat. Um, Ashley, do you want to ask your question yourself? Hey, yes. I was just wondering if temperature is included in the model as well. Uh, no, no temperature. Okay. All right, well, last chance for any more questions. Either raise your hand or put it in the chat. Okay. Um, well, thanks so much, Alnaz, again. Thank you. And thanks to all the participants. Um, and next week, we expect that we will be virtual as usual. Um, if that changes, we'll let you know. Um, but for now, we do plan on being virtual next week, so please show up here in our usual team slot for that. Um, we're going to end the recording, but if you want to stick around and say hello for a minute or two, feel free. <laughs>